0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, I'm reporter Emily Baker. Before we start this story, just a warning. What you're about to hear is confronting. It explores mental health issues and includes a detailed exploration of trauma. If you find that upsetting, you might want to give it a miss or talk to someone. There are some great organisations waiting to help. Including Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue at beyondblue.org.au. This is a story about betrayal and an abuse of power, which occurred over several months in a setting where people should feel safe. It's one person's story, and you'll probably find it shocking, but it's actually more common than you think. And just a heads up there is some strong language. Kate's first impression of Scott Dufton was that he looked, well, pretty normal.
2: I just thought he was an average guy. He was wearing, like, leather boots, chinos, a short-sleeved shirt. He was quite short and had a completely bald head. Kate had just answered a knock at the door.
1: On the other side was a man who introduced himself as Scott, who she guessed was a couple of decades older than her. It was October 2019... And Kate, which is not her real name, was living in a one-bedroom
2: apartment in Hobart. He told me that the the first time that he saw me, that he thought I, I was so beautiful and he was admiring how the sun was shining on my face. They started talking and Scott seemed impressed. He was trying to compliment me on my intellect and he said, you have the brain the size of a small planet...
1: Kate's well-educated, well-read. She's fluent in two languages and she loves to unwind with reality TV. The first time we met, I was struck by her outfit. It was bold. There was lots of pink and she looked amazing. Kate lives with severe mental illness. She's survived difficult life events and when she met Scott, Kate was at a very low place. She'd only just left her boyfriend, and it was a really bad breakup. She was unemployed, and things were pretty awful. She had recently been hospitalised after a
2: suicide attempt. When Scott showed up, he said he could help. I thought it was that he cared about me because he saw something special in me. Kate remembers Scott speaking with an English
1: accent. He'd worked in Scotland and had recently moved to Australia from New Zealand. When Kate first met him, he'd just started working for the Tasmanian Health Service. You see, Scott wasn't just some guy. He was Kate's treating psychiatrist. He'd been assigned to her care as part of a new Hospital in the Home program.
2: Like he would tell me I'm his special patient and I'm his star patient and all this sort of stuff. Kate
1: remembers Scott being attentive in a way that no other health professional had been before.
2: He would show me attention and, like, if a session was hard, for example, he'd give me a call after. No-one ever does that, you know. He seemed to
1: take a real interest and was friendly and informal. And in those early days when Kate felt incredibly low, it seemed like he was seriously dedicated to helping
2: her feel better. Scott was there... And he showed a lot of interest in me and my care. He would give me books. He would send me texts a lot, like a few times a day, if not more. When Kate self-harmed, Scott was there to get her help. I cut my arm extremely badly. And I called him because his office was just down the corner and I said, look, I don't know what to do, there's blood everywhere. He got an ambulance, took me to the hospital and, um, yeah, he was there for me, I guess. For hours each week, Scott
1: would meet Kate for intense one-on-one sessions. He started writing her personal notes and signing them off with two kisses
2: he would write me cards, cards that were very poetic and sentimental as well.
1: Scott was going through his own emotional turmoil. His best friend was terminally ill, and he was also dealing with the death of a pet. Kate remembers he was trying to get his accreditation with the College of Psychiatrists. Scott started visiting Kate in the evenings. She says sometimes they'd share takeaway meals, which he'd send her to collect and pay for, Well, he phoned his partner back home.
2: Yeah, he was extremely stingy and he'd say his takeaway order and it would usually be about $50 for both of us and I'd kind of be like, oh, okay, all right then. And he'd call his girlfriend in New Zealand while I was going to get dinner and I was just thinking to myself, like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing but I don't have anyone else so I'll take whatever crumbs I can get, basically. Scott was different from other medical
1: professionals Kate had dealt with and she knew something weird was going on. There were big and little signs, like how he casually texted from his phone to organise appointments and how relaxed he was with other traditional doctor-patient
2: formalities. And something that I always found strange is that psychiatrists as as a whole are usually very clear about calling them doctor such and such dr smith but it was always scott and not scott dufton and i remember thinking he compliments me so much it was all very odd
1: kate wasn't the only one who thought scott was being a bit too friendly Late one night, she received a message from her ex. One
2: New Year's Eve, my ex-partner saw Scott come out of my house at midnight and he said, you're fucking your psychiatrist, aren't you? And I didn't write back, but I thought, oh, gosh. Wow. Kate was rattled
1: because she wasn't sleeping with Scott and it worried her that someone else would think so. But there was a powerful incentive for her to keep seeing him. For a start, he was her doctor and Kate says Scott Dufton was offering more than just help. He was offering a cure. He said not only had she been misdiagnosed in the past, he could make her mental health issues disappear.
2: I thought, well, no-one's ever told me that before, that's... Wonderful. I hate living my life with mental illness. It's effectively ruined my life. The boundaries between doctor and patient were becoming completely
1: blurred. Then one night, a couple of months after they first met...
2: We were at my house and I'd smoked probably upwards of five joints and had taken a huge dose of quetiapine. That's a powerful antipsychotic that she'd been prescribed
1: that night, they had sex. What had started as a therapeutic relationship turned into something else, something
2: darker. And I remember thinking, oh shit, like, if I say no, I won't have a doctor that cares about me anymore. I better just not say anything Scott would later say the pair had
1: spoken about what was happening and that it was consensual. Kate doesn't see
2: it that way. I felt conflicted because the amount of contact hours that I had with him was so great. I would say it would almost be like, um, you know how people are groomed for cults? And that over time, their thinking changes, and I think that happened to me. The encounters
1: with Scott continued... Sometimes he'd go to her house. Sometimes she'd go to his hotel room. Kate says they had sex during what should have been appointments.
2: I guess I didn't want to do anything that would jeopardise my quality of health care. And if that meant having sex with my doctor to be cured, that's what I had to do. Initially, Scott didn't seem
1: too worried about people finding out. His office was close to her home and Hobart's a pretty
2: small place. He almost had this sense that he was ambivalent about getting caught and I I couldn't believe that because he was almost about to be admitted to the fellowship of psychiatrists, almost. He failed twice and this was his third attempt. As the encounters
1: continued... Kate says Scott shared his opinions, all negative, about other members of Kate's treating team and her inner circle. It had the effect of alienating Kate from her
2: life outside of their sessions. Within the context of his treatment, he very much isolated me from my friends and family and would make derogatory remarks about my family very, very frequently So I got to the point where I didn't want anything to do with my family. As time passed and Scott continued to
1: see her, Kate's mental health wasn't getting any better. My suicidality increased through the roof. She says she was isolated from family and friends and came to rely on Scott for companionship, as well as medication. The cure he'd promised hadn't just failed to materialise. Her mental health was getting even worse.
2: I think I ended up in intensive care for a week. And he said to me, he said, if I wasn't fucking you, I'd put you on a Webster pack. You know, a Webster pack is to dispense medication safely to people who've had an overdose. So I I thought, oh, I'm lucky, you know, i get special privileges if I sleep with my doctor. Scott had
1: personal reasons to keep his sessions with Kate secret. Aside from being her treating psychiatrist, meaning his actions were professionally prohibited, he had a long-term partner in New Zealand. He told Kate not to let anyone know what was happening. He used to tell me, if you tell anyone, this will ruin you too. One day, Scott announced he was moving to Western Australia. He left in February. It was seven weeks after their
2: first sexual encounter. And it came as a total shock He left me all alone in one sense because I didn't have anyone anymore and I couldn't tell anyone anymore because I didn't think I would be believed. Now alone,
1: Kate found it a struggle to keep the secret. They stayed in touch with long, drawn-out phone calls, but Kate had the sense he just wanted to keep her from
2: revealing what had happened. He would call me and we'd talk for hours and hours and hours and hours. And he, I think he was just placating me so that I wouldn't divulge the relationship or the nature of the transgression of the relationship because, you know, as he said, you will ruin me and you will ruin yourself. You will ruin your career as well.
1: One night, Kate snapped. She told him she couldn't keep the secret anymore and she needed to tell someone.
2: He was in Western Australia. And I said to him, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I'm gonna have to tell someone. It was a big decision. But one afternoon in
1: April, sitting and chatting with a visiting nurse in her home, she asked the question that had been playing
2: on her mind. I said, do you think I'm vulnerable? And she said, Yes. And I said, Oh. And that was like a a moment of realization for me. Because I hadn't I I sort of thought that I had agency in the relationship, but I absolutely didn't because I was so unwell. And then I said, Can you guess what happened? And she said, Dr. Dufton, and I said, Yep. And then she's like, right, I have to call the consultant. And the consultant walked down and then she was informed. And she started crying in front of me.
1: That exchange had a profound effect on Kate. What she realised was that there was really nothing normal about what was going on with Scott. It was abuse. And Scott was her abuser. But part of her still blamed herself. In a series of text messages, she apologised to him and worried about his
2: mental health. I thought, what if he kills himself? Like, I can't be responsible for that. I'm already severely mentally ill. I can't have someone's death on my hands, even though I know now that it wouldn't have been on my hands. Scott told her his life, as he knew it, was over. Kate decided
1: to file an official complaint. Kate first emailed me last May telling me she wanted her story known. She wanted others to know they weren't alone. And Kate's story of abuse in an unequal relationship is not isolated. I've been reporting on sexual misconduct for years and I've heard from many people with similar stories. While the vast majority of health professionals do the right thing, like in any profession there's some who don't. But it's actually not easy to find out how many health practitioners like Scott have been disciplined for crossing the line with their patients. That seems like pretty important information so later in the year I decided to find out and with the help of some colleagues ended up reading through more than a thousand disciplinary decisions published since 2010 we found hundreds of examples of sexual misconduct by health workers. And what really shocked me was just how common this was in mental health settings. In fact, almost one in every three proven cases we found
3: involves someone working in mental health. And that's just the incidents we know of. A really heartbreaking part of my job is hearing from women who've been victims of sexual misconduct and chose not to report it
1: Marie Bismarck is a professor in public health law at the University of Melbourne. She's also a board member of Melbourne's Royal Women's Hospital.
3: We don't know the full extent of this problem. We know about the cases that have been reported to the police and the cases that have been reported to APRA or the medical board. But as with all types of sexual offending, we suspect that there may be more that we're not aware of, that what we're seeing may just be the tip of the iceberg.
1: In 2020, Marie published research specifically looking at sexual misconduct complaints
3: against health professionals. The research we did found that psychiatrists and psychologists are among the health professions who have higher rates of sexual misconduct notifications. The rates are still low, um, but there is a concern that within those mental health professions there are higher rates of notifications.
1: Marie believes that's probably because the day-to-day practice of mental health practitioners involves being alone with emotionally vulnerable patients. And sometimes, in that intimate setting, the professional
3: relationship can blur, even tip over, into out-and-out abuse. I spent a long time trying to understand what it is about those professions that might put them at higher risk. And what they all have in common is that they have one-to-one relationships with patients, over a period of time, behind closed doors. In the past week alone, I've received emails from many people, mostly
1: women, about this exact issue. Some have reported it to regulators and some haven't. As Kate would tell you, it's really hard to make a complaint against a trusted health professional. Marie says some people face extra barriers
3: and that contributes to the underreporting. My worry is that it's groups of patients who may be more marginalised, for example, they may speak English as a second language or they may have a history of mental illness, who may be finding it more difficult than others to come forward. But even if
1: someone does file a complaint, that's only the first step. In the early days after Kate spoke to her treating team about Scott, she says she wasn't well-supported. I think it was really badly handled. In fact, the police were called to take her to the Royal Hobart Hospital.
2: In the hospital, no-one did a pregnancy test. No-one did an STI test. No-one even asked me any details as to what happened. Nor did anyone from the Department of Health recommend any specialist... When we asked the Tasmanian
1: Health Service about this, it said it was committed to providing safe and high-quality mental health services. It also said it put together a review panel to independently examine what happened to Kate and prevent it from occurring again. Kate knew her specialists had to notify the regulator about what had happened. But it was important to her that they heard it in her own words. Kate sent her complaint to the body responsible for the registration of health practitioners, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, or AHPRA. In most states, including Tasmania, AHPRA also investigates registered health workers. She remembers one phone call in particular.
2: The lawyer said, oh, and then you'll be able to put it to bed. And I did not like that comment. I just thought, well... You could tell that the investigators didn't have a health background or counselling background and maybe they should have counsellors or a helpline or something to support people who have made a notification, you know, patients.
1: Kate says after what felt like a lengthy investigation into her complaint, promises were made to her about the probable outcome for Scott Dufton, but what was promised was never delivered. When I spoke to APRA, the body Kate complained to, It admitted it could always do better.
0: Look, I completely accept that these can be very lengthy processes and that can be very stressful for everybody involved.
1: Martin Fletcher is the chief executive of APRA.
0: It's important, I think, to note that that time frame often reflects the complexity of the matters that we're dealing with.
1: APRA's powers are somewhat limited. The more serious cases usually go to independent tribunals.
0: We're certainly working closely with tribunals to sort of try and iron out any sort of pain points in the process from the point of view of once we refer and and then to the tribunal, although obviously what the tribunal then does is a matter for them.
1: We put Kate's concerns to Martin that the ARPA investigation process was long and difficult and that she felt she wasn't being heard
0: the regulatory process can be incredibly re-traumatising for the person raising the concern. So the way we've tried to address that is to establish what we're calling a notifier support service, and that is led by social workers and is designed to provide support and information, and if you like, navigation guidance to uh, both people raising the concern as well as witnesses about the process and how it works, and to really try and make sure that uh, the work that we do is, if you like, as trauma-informed as possible.
1: Following this interview, we put our research to the Federal Health Minister and the state and territory health ministers around Australia. They committed to discuss the issue when they meet later this month, with many supporting a review. After Kate's complaint, Scott quickly admitted to his conduct. And soon after, he left Australia for New Zealand. A decision now had to be made about his future and whether he could keep working as a medical professional. The case was eventually heard in the Tasmanian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, also known as TASCAT, in 2021.
2: I'm pretty sure that he didn't even attend.
1: Represented by his lawyer, Scott submitted a written apology.
0: I am still horrified at what I have done. I feel that I deserve to have my career ruined. I have spent considerable time in reflection in the year since these events took place. Most notably, I have striven to understand what lay behind my brutal self-sabotage on the absolute cusp of qualifying as a psychiatrist.
1: In his apology, he sought to apportion blame on Kate.
0: She had placed her hand across my extended ankles, and I had not stopped her. I did not get into bed with her. I apologised that I allowed that to happen, but she asked me to lie on the bed next to her for a few minutes.
1: When the tribunal handed down its decision, it was scathing. It described Scott Dufton's actions as disgraceful. In fact, it said it was difficult to conceive of a more serious breach of professional ethics by a medical practitioner engaged to provide acute psychiatric care. The tribunal agreed with the medical board who brought the case that his evidence was self-pitying, self-justifying and edging towards victim-blaming. The tribunal also agreed with the medical board that Scott's behaviour was predatory, that he knew what he was doing was wrong, and that it would hurt Kate, and it did hurt her. It also noted that Scott had failed to show any evidence of how he had sought to rehabilitate himself. Explaining his conduct, Scott had cited the pressure he was under at the time, including the terminal illness of his best friend, the limited face-to-face contact with his partner, and the death of his pet.
2: The death of the family pet was insulting to my intelligence. I don't think if my dog died that would be an excuse to cause serious lifelong harm on another person. You know, that wouldn't stand up in a court of law. Why does that stand in the TASCAT? It's unfathomable.
1: The tribunal did, however, accept that Scott was remorseful and noted that he had no prior disciplinary history and was at a low risk of repeating the same behaviours. In the end, the tribunal deregistered Scott Dufton. But despite the serious nature of his misconduct, his period of deregistration was limited to two and a half years from the decision date. That means he can apply to return to practice next year. I just thought
2: it was a joke, really. I thought it was a joke. He could incur so much harm when we're told that doctors must do no harm. And it's, it's 2.5 years. Like, what about the effect on my life? I don't think in 2.5 years, I'm going to be okay and ready to work. Probably not. I'm highly educated. How is that fair to me? I'm not I'm not I'm not eligible for compensation or anything like that. So I'm not really sure. The system is very broken. Very very broken that these people are effectively untouchable and that needs to change.
1: You might think that once a mental health worker has a proven complaint of sexual misconduct against their name, that's the end of their career but the data from 2010 until now shows that's just not true. In the cases I've looked at involving mental health professionals, dozens of workers with proven complaints were allowed to keep practising, sometimes after a period off the job. Some that I came across were shocking. In one instance, a Melbourne psychiatrist impregnated a patient who'd sought treatment after a sexual assault. Another case involved a Sydney psychiatrist injecting a patient who he was dating with heroin. In both cases, the psychiatrists were removed from practice. Then they were allowed to see patients again, with some restrictions. Scott Dufton told the Tasmanian Tribunal he doesn't plan to reapply for his registration. But when health practitioners are reinstated, in many cases, the public is never told why. Those who have studied this process are baffled by the lack of
4: transparency. It's Distinguished Professor Jenny Milbank and that's J-E-N-N-I-M-I-L-L-B-A-N-K and I'm a Professor of Law at UTS.
1: Professor Jenny Milbank studied what happens after a health practitioner loses their right to practice and is allowed to re-register.
4: One of the biggest concerns I have is that in the Australian system with the reinstatement of practitioners, so practitioners who are so unsafe or what they've done is so very serious that they've been deregistered, When they come back into practice in Australia everywhere except New South Wales, we don't know why and we don't know how many of them there are. We don't know what reasons there are um, that the regulator has decided that they're now safe enough um, to come back. And when I say we, I mean um, both of us who've (laughs) tried to get that information. I mean the Australian public and I mean the regulator itself. They actually don't have that data.
1: ARBRA has an online database of registered health workers that anyone can access. And while that website will usually reveal whether someone has had a tribunal finding against them, what it often won't say is why someone was allowed to return to practice.
4: Those decisions aren't being explained in writing, they're not being released publicly, they can't be examined. So it means that we're kind of operating in the dark. We can find someone who's back on the register, uh, who may have been removed previously and just know nothing about what happened in between.
1: What we know is, when professional boards are considering whether to re-register someone, they'll take into account things like why a person lost their registration and what they've done since to rehabilitate themselves. But the thing is, the patients involved won't get a chance to have their voice heard.
4: For every patient who complains, We should think of them as a very precious resource because they're protecting the safety of dozens or hundreds or thousands of other patients. So we need their trust and we should be engaging really closely with the public about what's important to them um, when it comes to uh, different kinds of misconduct, what's important for them to know about a practitioner who's rehabilitated.
1: There's a prestigious professional body that represents and educates psychiatrists. It's the one Scott Dufton was trying to join. It's called the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, and they have a zero-tolerance approach to sexual misconduct.
4: It's a non-negotiable policy.
1: This is the president of the body, Associate Professor Vinay Lacra.
4: These boundary violations fundamentally undermine the trust between a patient and a psychiatrist and if we need to maintain that trust between a patient and a psychiatrist then we need to uh, be clear enough to give a clear message not only to the psychiatric community but also to our patients and their family members that this is something we would not tolerate this is something we would not accept
1: but even if you've had a sexual misconduct complaint proven against you and you've been kicked out under the zero tolerance approach there's not much more the college can do. In fact, the whole system of regulation is multi-layered and bureaucratic, and the consequences sometimes seem, well, not much. But here's the thing. The way health regulation is set up in Australia isn't to punish practitioners, but to try to protect against future risk. It's confusing. I asked Martin Fletcher, the head of APRA, about this. There are people who would be saying, if I break the rules at my workplace, if I deliberately breach the code of my job, I'm out of a job. Why isn't that the case for health practitioners?
0: So ultimately, if we think uh, the concerns that are raised around sexual misconduct uh, have grounds, uh, we take that to an independent tribunal in each state and territory. And it's the independent tribunal that makes the ultimate decision about what the sanction might be. It's important also to note that we're not an employer, we're a regulator. And what we're really looking at is the question of, uh, first of all, a practitioner meeting required standards in terms of safe practice. And then secondly, if there is a gap or a concern for future risk to patients, what we might need to do in terms of regulatory action. It's then a matter for an employer, I think, to decide what they think is safe in their particular context.
2: I feel like I've gone into the ocean with all my clothes on and come out and I walk around with that all day.
1: Kate's still dealing with the trauma of her encounter with Scott Dufton. She's getting help, but says she's far from recovered. I think I'm up to doctor number four since the incident. Scott told the tribunal his behaviour was not predatory. But looking back, Kate now understands that Scott was using his position to manipulate her.
2: He came to know a lot about me, I would say, probably more than any other healthcare professional had ever known about me. Now, that inherently causes a huge power imbalance. If you know someone's vulnerabilities, you know their history, you know their traumas, That that is the power imbalance.
1: Kate can now see that she didn't fully comprehend what was going on at the time
2: and the lasting effect it would have. I thought, in all honesty, I thought this is the first healthcare professional who actually cares about me. These these people are very powerful, these doctors, and they need to be brought to account. They are not being brought to account by the Medical Board of Australia, by TASCAT, by the other jurisdictions versions of TASCAT, and it's not fair for the patients I'm sure many patients, suicide. And these are lives lost because of poor decision-making and it's unbelievable and it has to stop.
1: Soon after she made the complaint, Scott blocked Kate's messages. He's never rung to apologise. No, never.
2: He wouldn't apologise, but he would kind of... I think he would have moments of doubt as to what he was doing. Basically, I think he was... I, I, I remember feeling at the time it would really suit his interests if I were dead.
1: We got in touch with Scott via email. He declined an interview but said he accepts full responsibility for his actions. Kate doesn't regret reporting Scott Dufton. And while for her, or for anyone in this position, speaking out is hard, she's doing this for every patient
2: who's lived through something similar. Being a a doctor is a privilege and not a right, and one that should be respected heavily, because patients come to you at their most vulnerable and they tell you the most intimate of things. So to do the ultimate and have a sexual relationship or whatever you want to call it is just disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting.
1: If this story has brought up some upsetting thoughts and you need someone to talk to, there are people who want to listen and want to help. You can call Lifeline on one three one 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 four, or check out some of the fantastic resources at beyondblue.org.au. Look after yourself and don't suffer alone. Background briefing sound producers are Laila Shuna and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Isabella Tropiano. Fact checking by Ben Sveen. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou. The executive producer is Fanu Falali. And I'm Emily Baker. Subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.